in this story, there's some mature content. There's maybe one word that uh, if you have any kids in the back seat, you might want to give them a Candy Crush game to play or something. Okay? Thank you. Hi, I want to take a, a moment to tell you about another podcast from WDET. I know you're going to love it. It's called The Beginning of the End. And The Beginning of the End is a show about when, how, and why things end. The Beginning of the End is about the decisions we all have to live with. New episodes are on the way, but you can listen to Season 1 now at beginningoftheend.org. From WDET, you're listening to Twisted Storytellers. I'm Satori Shakur, your host and curator, and this is Oprah Winfrey. You are an anomaly. You have been able to transform your life. I know that people think I'm an anomaly. I don't personally think that, because I see men and women who have transformed their lives. They just haven't figured out how do they re-emerge in a society that's so unforgiving. Mm. Well, that's a powerful tweet. How do you yeah. emerge in a society that's so unforgiving? Well, that's true. Yeah. On this episode of the Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers, we are proud to bring you a Detroit native. His name is Shaka Sangor, and he has a transformative, harrowing, difficult, and transcendent story to share. I grew up on the east side of Detroit. Uh, the east side of the building, what up, though? So I grew up on Camden, uh, between uh, Newport and Chalmers. Um, and on the outside looking in, I grew up in what would be considered the ideal household. My father worked full time, my mother was at home, uh, took care of home, she was a homemaker. Uh, grew up with, uh, we was kind of like the Black Brady Bunch, it was three boys, three girls. So on the outside looking in, it was just a beautiful family and a beautiful representation of what that community was at the time. But on the inside, there was something very different taking place. My mother, uh, was highly abusive. And as her and my father began to go through problems, she became more and more abusive. And I remember, like, the physical abuse really was hurtful, just being beat for small incidents, minor stuff that kids do, like making too much noise. Uh, that was ass-beaten-worthy. But the thing that really hurt the most was the verbal and emotional abuse. And I remember one time coming in from school, uh, I was like the smartest out of my siblings. I, I, I still am. <laughs> uh, but I, I remember coming home and I was really excited. I had just scored really high on the test and I, I came in and I remember just coming to the house like, Ma, you know, I scored such and such. And she was in the kitchen and she whirled around and threw a cast iron pot at my head. And I was just fortunate enough to be able to duck and I was like, that was devastating. Like, even though physically nothing happened to me, just the devastation of knowing that in a moment of joy and happiness that she can turn on me so violently. Um, the abuse continued to escalate. My parents, uh, you know, they kind of went through their struggles, ups and downs. We, they separated. I moved my father for a bit. And then we, I ended up moving back home. And at this point, 
it escalated to such a level that I knew that if I didn't leave her house, that I would eventually hit her back. And so at 14, I ran away. And when I ran away, I had no idea where I was going to go. And this is the naivete of youth, and this is what happens to kids in our community all the time. Um, they run away aimlessly because they're running from pain and hurt and things of that nature. So when I ran away, I went and stayed at, you know, initially, like in one of my friend's garages. Uh, then I was sneaking another friend's basement. He would sneak, like, like bologna sandwiches and uh, hot dogs down. And I would go up to uh, Harper Food Center and hustle and try to, you know, carry people bags to their car to earn a couple of, you know, 50 cent or a dollar, whatever, to give me something to eat. And so for like two weeks, I really was like running around the neighborhood, dusty, dirty, uh, most of the time unbathed, wearing the same clothes. I was ridiculed and the butt of various jokes. And one day, this guy who grew up in the neighborhood, he come riding down the street, music blaring in his little ride. And he was like, man, you know, they told me you've been going through some things out here, um, but I got an opportunity for you. You know, so I'm like, you know, what, he like, well, hop in the ride, you know, I'm taking you to get something to eat. So he took me to get some Burger King, and I swear it was like the best Burger King ever. Yeah. I've, been, <laughs> I've been eating like chips and pops, you know what I'm saying, and cookies. Uh. And so as we, as we going on this ride, he was like, listen, man, uh, you know, I got a way you can make some money. And so I'm like, you know, what, what, did, what do you want me to do? He was like, well, I got this spot over here. And I'm like, you got a spot like where? Like you got some type of disease or stuff, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> He's like, no, it's a crack spot. It's a spot where, you know, we sell crack from. And this is 1986, so crack was like just uh, new to Detroit at the time. And uh, so he takes me to this spot on, on Flanders and Roseberry. And it's this dilapidated, nasty, trifling, uh, two-family flat. And so I go in, and he explained to me, say, listen, these rocks $5, you know, it's $500 sack, you know, count them up, blah, blah, blah. So me being an honor roll student, really smart, I'm like, okay, I did the math real quick. And so I started selling crack. And this is the thing about crack. When it first was introduced to Detroit, the addicts weren't what you see on the street today. They were like doctors, lawyers, dentists, you know, things of that nature. So this was like glamorous, you know. Um, but surely, within, within the first six months, I began to see the evil effects of crack cocaine. I was on a spot on Jefferson, and I got lured out by a crack addict. And he set me up to get robbed in this apartment building. And I remember when I was walking down the hallway, a guy walked behind me. His name was Tiny. He was like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, fat as hell. So hell he ended up with a name like Tiny, I don't even know. Um, but I remember him grabbing me by my neck and pulling me behind this door. And all I could see was the darkness of these basement steps. And I just remember the smell of, of wild Irish rose, the, the stench of these festering sores he had on his head from shooting dope. And I just thought to myself, like he gonna shoot me in the head and kick me down these stairs and nobody's gonna find me until my body is rotten and stinking up the building. And fortunately, he was more concerned with getting high than he was with killing a 14-year-old. And so they let me go, and I just remember aimlessly walking through the neighborhood, and I stopped at this Coney Island. It was grown folks, and it was during school hours. And in my mind at that moment, all I wanted was somebody to rescue me. Somebody to ask, why weren't you in school right now? You know, but instead, 
They looked past me. I looked past them. You know, I called the guy I was selling drugs for, and I told him, I was like, dude, I just got robbed. And I was, I was afraid to tell him that I was afraid because in the hood, in the streets, you can't do that. So I bottled that fear up, and it began to manifest in very unhealthy ways. I started drinking. Um, I eventually started actually smoking 51s at the age of 14. Fortunately for me, my will was strong enough for me to break that addiction because, honestly, I like being fresh, and I was like, I can't be fresh if I'm smoking up all my damn money. Uh, <laughs> so I had to figure that out. But shortly after that, my childhood friend was murdered. Uh, at the age of 15, my oldest brother got shot in the neck by my older brother. And that brother eventually got shot when I was 16. And then at the age of 17, I had moved to the west side, was selling drugs in Brightmore. And at the age of 17, I got shot three times uh, standing on the corner of my block. And when I got shot, the ambulance never came. My friend, he ended up taking me to the hospital. They patched me up and sent me back to the block. Nobody ever talked to me. Nobody ever said, hey, how do you feel? Nobody ever said, I'm sorry. When I returned to the block, I returned apathetic, emotionally cold, and with the mindset that if I get into a similar conflict, I'm going to shoot first. In a 14-month time span, I shot four different people. And tragically, in July of 1991, I shot and killed a man. I was subsequently sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison, one month into my 19th birthday. You're listening to the Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers. In just a few moments, we're going to go inside solitary confinement with Shaka Sangor. Just one month before his 19th birthday, Shaka Sangor was sent to prison for murder. When I entered prison, I was bitter, I was angry, I was hostile, I was violent. And as you can imagine, the prison I went to was called Michigan Reformatory, also known as the Gladiator School. And so the first day walking in prison, when I first got to prison, the first day I remember a guy got stabbed coming down the stairs. And I made it up in my mind that day that while I was going to do my bit, that I had to be a lion. And I refused to be a sheep. And so the first five years of my incarceration, I got into every type of imaginable trouble you can imagine. And that's the crazy part. It's like prison, I'm still getting in trouble. Uh, but I accumulated 25 misconducts. And basically they ranged from disobeying a direct order to assault on inmate, assault on staff. But while I was going through this very turbulent period, it was one thing that was consistent in my life, and that was books. And I remember this guy, he gave me, uh, well, first he was writing stories. He was writing stories about his hood, and they was like folded up on these pieces of paper, and I remember him sending them to me. And they was cool, I was like, you know, it made me feel like I was back in the hood. And then he introduced me to Donald Goins. And y'all up on Donald Goins? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
So he introduced me to Donald Goins. And I, and I remember when I read Donald's first book that you had to go to this certain room in the library where all the black books were at and check them out. And what happened was when I entered this room, a whole new world opened up to me. Because at that time, I didn't even realize there was so many great, brilliant black writers in the world. And so I started reading all of Donald's books. I ran through them relatively quickly. And so I ended up reading Malcolm X's uh, autobiography. And that book had such a profound impact on my life that in that moment, I realized that if I was ever released from prison, that I would return to my community as an asset instead of a liability. And it didn't happen overnight. You know, I, I would read Malcolm, and then I would go run my hustles on the yard, and the guy owed me some money. I'm like, I'm going to get you stabbed, and, you know, I might throw you off the tier. Uh, and then the flip side, I'd be in my cell like, now Malcolm wouldn't be doing this shit. But I'm like, I got I to gotta survive in here, right? So, and so I'm, I'm running these illegal stores, and I mean, the profit margins was like fucking incredible. Um, I mean, you, buy, you owe me some money. It's like 100% markup. It's like the greatest marketing ever. Um, <laughs> seriously. I mean, it's a ridiculous markup. So I'm running these. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm constantly at war. I'm, I'm struggling with myself. I'm having this inner turmoil because on, on one side of me is, is Malcolm. And then on the other side is, is, is my street name, Jay. And like, so I'm constantly at war with myself. But as I continue to read, you know, the, the, the layers of street savvy toughness began to kind of uh, diminish. And I started becoming very political and very uh, racially and, and, and socially conscious and aware. And so um, eight years into my incarceration, I get transferred to another facility. And one of the things about prisons in Michigan is most of them are in these very rural areas. And the officers typically their first encounter with black people are actually under these conditions. And prison is the modern-day plantation, and the modern-day plantation mentality exists there. So eight years into my incarceration, I, I run into this officer. Uh, we got into a, a verbal conflict about something that I was writing. I worked in the law library, so I knew the laws and I knew the policies. And I kind of called him out on the policy he was trying to abuse. And so he became very uh, vindictive as a result of that. Coming in from work, I had to use the restroom. He's letting everybody come in, and then when it gets to me, he's like, no, you can't use it. And so I say, so what are, you, what are you telling me? You want me to go in my cell and pee out the window, pee in a bottle, disrespect my bunkie, then me and him going to get into it? He's like, I don't care what you have to do, what you do. So at that point, there's a hard decision to make. My humanity or the you know, possibility of getting a misconduct, getting my security um, increased. And I, I thought about something that resonated with me throughout my incarceration is the importance of embracing my humanity. And that's something that I had left on the streets. And so I was like, I'm not going to be animalistic and go pee out a window. So I, I walked past him. I actually bumped him when I walked past him. And he was like, that's assault on the staff. And I'm like, cool, it's going to be 90 days in the hole, whatever. So when I got ready to leave the bathroom, he wouldn't let me leave out. And I attempted to, and I'm literally like going through my mind, like, damn, I just had a visit with my family. I just got my security level lower, and I don't want to end up making this worse. So when I attempted to leave, he pushed me back. And then I attempted to leave again, and he literally put his hand in my chest and was like, you're not going nowhere. And so the third attempt to leave, he took his hand and he pushed me back in the bathroom, and then I went straight East Charmers on him. Um, <laughs> 
and, uh, and so what ended up happening as a result of that, I got sentenced to an additional two and a half years. Um, I was sentenced to solitary confinement and, and served four and a half years in solitary confinement. And so when I'm, when I'm in solitary confinement, I'm locked down 23 hours a day uh, for five days out of the week, 24 for the other two. And I get three showers a week. And when they bring you out for a shower, they put handcuffs on you, but it's attached to a dog leash. And they literally walk you down to a cage, and it don't matter if it's a female guard or male guard. They walk you down to this shower cage, there's no privacy, and you just take your shower and you, you back to your cell. And so one day I'm sitting here and I'm like, damn, I hope I get a letter from home or something. It was like a really tough day. And this particular day, I just remember pacing the floor. I had had a pretty rough week. And when the mail came, I was like super excited, you know, to get a letter from my father. And I saw a letter from my son. And my son, he was like, nah, he was born six months after I was arrested. So I didn't get a chance to see him until I was actually incarcerated. But I got this letter from him. And I remember reading the letter. Like normally he would write about his schoolwork and what he was doing, et cetera. But this particular letter, he was like, Dad, I know why you're in prison. And my heart completely dropped. He was like, my mama told me you locked up for murder. He was like, Dad, don't kill again. Jesus watches what you do. And that was the first time in my incarceration that I came face to face with the reality and the devastation that I had not only caused the victim's family, but that I had caused my own family, and more importantly, my child. And it was at that point, I thought about this quote I read from Socrates, and it said that unexamined life isn't worth living. And so I began to go back and write. Anytime I would get angry, I would write about what my response was. And it was like reading the thoughts of a madman. And I was like, damn, how did I go from wanting to be a doctor to sitting in a solitary confinement cell. And so at that point, I started taking writing serious. And I realized that I had never completed anything of substance in my life. So I challenged myself to write a story. And I wrote my first novel in about 30 days. And then I let the guys on the tier read it. You know, we hook up our fish line, and I was sliding the story. And I remember sending it to the first guy across from me. And I didn't hear nothing from him for like hours. And I'm like, dude, I'm calling him like, yo, yo, get that book. And he's not saying nothing. But when he finally responded, he was like, man, it's one of the best stories I ever read. I was like, damn. But I had to balance it out against the fact we was in solitary confinement. I'm like, <laughs> like, dog, like, dog, could have sent you a, <laughs> like, I'm like, I could have sent you a, 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 a fucking deodorant ingredients. You would have been like, this is mesmerizing. So. <laughs> So I'm literally like, um, as, I'm, as, I'm, as I'm getting this, so I started sending it to other guys though, and the response was consistent. So, so I ended up sending the story to my one brother who had did things right his whole life. And when he was like, man, this is, this is a brilliant piece of writing, uh, I began to really take writing serious. I ended up writing another novel, and then I finally got out of solitary confinement in 2005. And the thing, the thing that's funny about writing is when you write a story and you think it's great, you're like, yeah, I'm going to send this off to a publisher and they're going to be like, it's the best thing ever and we're going to publish it and we're going to get this big old advance. And it didn't quite work out like that. Um, 
But the thing is, I taught myself about how to start a publishing company. And so I just started reading books and learning and, and doing those things. So I would save the money I made in prison. And at that time, uh, when I got out, I was working in law library. So I was making like a whopping $57 a month. You know what I'm saying? It's falling, son. It's like the best job in the joint. Um, but I would save that little $57. And whenever my family would send me money, I would save half of that. And, um, and that's, that's how I ended up starting my company. So I published my first book from prison. And so when it was time for me to go to the parole board, at that time I had published a children's book, a novel, and I had been published in a national book, and I got denied parole. And the lady was like, you're not prepared for society. It's like, damn, okay. I don't know what else I can do. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it, was, you know, it was kind of expected. I mean, I didn't have a, the greatest prison record. So I'm like, okay, I'll take the first one, what it is. Went to the parole board the second time. And the lady, I had a great interview, she loved me, she voted for me to get released. The guy who didn't see me, he voted against me, they had to go to a third person who didn't see me either, and he sided with the guy that didn't see me. So I got denied that second time, and at that point I was like, you know what, I'm not going to the parole board no more. And I really had that in my mind, that you know, I'm not gonna send my family through the ups and downs, getting excited, thinking I'm gonna come home and these people are gonna keep on denying me parole. And so I just told him, I was like, I'm not going to the parole board anymore. And um, my fiance at the time was like, are oh, you taking your ass to that parole board? <laughs> like, I didn't invest too much time coming back and forth for you to just be giving up. Uh, and my father was like, you know, you got you to fight. You know, you can't give up now. And so I went the third time and I got parole and I walked out of prison after 19 years. Exactly. Actually, I walked out of prison the day after my birthday. Uh, June 22nd, 2010, for the first time in 19 years. Um, and it was, the, like, the, it was the wildest thing ever. I came out to a very different world. Society has changed dramatically in 20 years. Uh, I had to learn technology relatively quickly. Uh, I had to get caught up. Actually, I started Facebook, though, like the first day I got <laughs> It's crazy. But I went to work immediately. Because this was, this was my reality, is that although I served my sentence, I didn't pay my debt to society. And the reason I say that is because while I was serving my, my sentence, I was up in like Ojibwe, Newberry, Marquette, uh, all these places in rural Michigan. I'm like, I ain't committing no damn crime up there, so I don't owe them nothing. I'm like, I owe my city. I owe my community. I owe the little brothers and sisters who look up to me when I was coming up in the streets. And so I didn't begin repaying my debt to society until I got released in 2010. I began to volunteer immediately at schools, two high schools I currently work at is Cody High School uh, and Tri-County High School in uh, Southfield. As a result of the work that I began to do, I was nominated for a Black Male Engagement Leadership Award. As a result of that, I got invited to all these meetings that's you know, sponsored by the Knight Foundation and I ended up meeting the director of MIT Media Lab in Cambridge, and he offered me a fellowship. So I currently have a fellowship at MIT Media Lab uh, in Cambridge. I'm, um, I'm working on, I'm working on at, at the Media Lab, I'm working on this project. It's called the Atonement Project, and it's to facilitate healing in our community by sharing stories between violent offenders, victims of violent crime, and really get to the root cause and, and, and opening up the opportunities for them to atone through real work that's needed in our community 
as a result of starting that project, I was given an opportunity to actually teach at the University of Michigan, and I'm looking forward to sharing this, the atonement project with you and many others. I think it's very important in our community. And what I think about standing our ground, and I think about what's really important about that is that when you look at prison in our society, we don't talk about the human side and the human element. 95% of people who are incarcerated will at some point return to the community. We have not only a choice, but we have a great opportunity to ensure that healthy men and women return to our community. And when we fail to do that, we fail to stand our ground on real principles that we all fought for, we advocated for, our ancestors stood up for, and we had to think about that. I could have came out here, and actually it looked like it's a lot of people in here, I could have been trying to figure out how to pull a heist. Uh, <laughs> uh, seeing some of y'all flexing up in here. Uh, but instead, I'm standing here talking to you from my heart as a human being. And it was only because some people loved me enough, provided me with hope, and that afforded me an opportunity to come out and do the things that I'm doing. So for me, when I thought about what did it mean to stand your ground, I made very serious commitments to myself. One was that I would never allow a prison to turn me into something that I wasn't. Two, that I would never allow my circumstance to dictate my sexuality. Three, that if I was ever released from prison, I would be an asset to my community instead of a deficit. And I stood firm in that. And I'm staying firm and I'm gonna continue to stand firm in it. And all I ask is that as we stand here, we think about incarceration and the impact it's had on our community as well as violent crime, is that we stand our ground in real principle and really look at the humanity in the person empathetically and understand that murderers aren't born in a vacuum. The violence we see in our community isn't born in a vacuum. You know, I was a kid and most of the men and women who I know who are incarcerated get incarcerated as kids. And most of them come from backgrounds of sexual abuse child abuse and we have to think about that when we look at our babies who we're throwing away so that's my story so i'm standing my ground i have books available out there uh, and i love y'all peace we love you too shaka sangor shaka's book writing my wrongs life death and redemption in an american prison is on the new york times bestseller list shaka sangor What an incredible story. If you want to know more about Shaka Sangor, visit shakasangor.com. S-H-A-K-A Sangor, S-E-N-G-H-O-R, Shaka Sangor. Almost in the same realm of difficulty as Satori Shakur, <laughs> but it's Shaka Sangor. Oh, so ladies and gentlemen, what did that stir inside you? Do you have similar stories, family members uh, on either side of this? If you do, go to the iTunes store, put Twisted Tellers in the search engine and write a review. Tell a little story of your own. Let us know how the story impacted you. Because these reviews, what you write, what you say, what you leave in these comment box is probably the most helpful, supportive thing you can do for this podcast. So please, just take a couple of minutes, visit the iTunes store, and tell us how you feel about our show. 
The Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers podcast is a production of WDET. The show is produced by Zach Rosen, sound design and mixed by Sam Bobian, and I'm your host, Satori Shakur. And just remember, when you bring your secrets to the light in the form of a story, they can heal, they can set you free. The music that you heard in today's podcast comes as a courtesy from our friends at Ghostly Songs. I know you know the story I tell it every time, but I have to tell you, I hated asking for money. But I am here to ask you proudly and without any reservations, if you have 50 cents, two dollars or a million, please donate. Donate your money to WDET.org. And what that'll do is keep us on the air. It'll keep us bringing these stories to you from Detroit Voices, the real fine. This is how you do it. Support our show. Go to WDET.org. And we thank you for every single penny and mostly for you listening. We understand how generous just listening is. So thank you. See you next time.